Good morning, everyone. How are you today? I know you're all fresh as a daisy this morning. Probably got eight, eight and a half hours sleep last night. You've been eating everything that you love for these last three days. And uh, you just need to sit back this morning and relax. We want to try to, I want to try to wrap this up this morning and leave you with some thoughts that will be helpful. But before I do, I have a lot of time this morning. We'll know when I'm done when 500 children run in here, okay? So when you see that happen, you know I'm done. I'll just click through the last 17 slides really quick. You take a picture of them as they go by. But um, I, wanna, I wanna thank Sam and Ellen, and uh, the list is so long here of people uh, your praise teams are just absolutely incredible. So many different people. Yes, yes. So many different people have been up here doing so many different things and so well. I appreciate it. And I, I know worship is something that is in our heart. But when you have quality people right with God and they know what they're doing as they lead in worship, it certainly enhances the whole uh, camp. There's no doubt about it. Last night was right on the edge, right? You know, with that last song last night, I don't know, I wish I took a video of Mark Trotter. I really should have taken a, a video of him. He was, he, he must have been born a Pentecostal. There's no question in my mind. Somehow he tried to get over it, but last night the flesh was flying everywhere. I want you to know that. But of course it was motivated from inside the spirit. I know that, there's no question about it, but... There was a lot of flesh flying around up here. I had to duck a few times. He would have hit me. He would have knocked me out. Anyway, thank you, Mark. Your messages have been absolutely spot on. I mean, they are. And, and I'm saying this in honesty, not in humility. I'm glad they asked you to speak at night and not me. There is no way I could have done what you have done uh, in this camp. You have really set the table with the principles of the crucified life. Thank you, Mark. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Go ahead. Yes. But there's so many people to thank here. A lot of, uh, let, let me name a group that you probably won't think of. And you know, you got your children's workers and you've got all the administrative people. And you know, some people are just hauling people around, making sure they get like Tom Brockmeyer, making sure that I show up here in the morning. I appreciate people like that. But you know, I came to Kansas City for the first time back in the 70s. I think it was 77 or 78. I'd only been saved for four or five years then. I was a youth director and I was invited to come out to do a youth camp. But I met so many wonderful people from Kansas City going all the way back into the 70s. And many of you, probably most of you, don't even know who those people are. But let me just say this. A thanks goes out to all the people that I know of that go all the way back then that have served the Lord through all the related ministries of KCBT. And this is one of the many results of all the investment and all the time that those people used in ministry back in the 70s, in the 80s, in 90s. There were camps like this. There were conferences like this. And many of the people that have gone out of the ministry, and you've got oodles and scads of them from your churches, 
Many of those people can go back and draw a line back into Kansas City Baptist Temple back in the 70s, maybe even some of them earlier than that. And there's a lot of people that we can thank for bringing us to where we are. You know, so I want to thank all of you people. There's many of you here right now. God bless you. We are always... We are always building on the shoulders. If you look at this humanistically, we're always building on the shoulders of somebody else. Somebody went before us, paid the price, you know, paid the first mortgage payment on the building or bought the land or bought the first pulpit that was hauled in, maybe a music stand. For the, there's, we're always building on the shoulders of other people. So young people particularly... And there are many of you in here, young, about 25 or under, I certainly would call you young, if you're in that category. There's a lot of people that have gone before you that have really built all the things that you see here. And you don't see them, you don't know them, you don't know their names, but they've invested much in you. Because they were looking forward 20, 30 years ago to the next generation and the next generation what would you have when you came into the place where you had to make your decisions when you were in the position of deciding, what am I going to do with my life? For me to live as Christ, is that true? Or what am I going to do with the time that I've been given here on earth? And not everybody looks at Philippians 1.21 and lives for Christ. We all know that. Anyway, let me pray with you and thank you to everybody. Uh, I've met some new friends here uh, Tori and Shauna, I met them not long ago at Billy Wood's church. Billy and his family are here this week. They have been a blessing to me in our church back home. But I met Tori and Shauna back then, and they just blessed my heart uh, down in, um, in the Atlanta area. And then I just met uh, Golden and April Davis this morning. They're going to be speaking at Harvest tomorrow, and uh, you're certainly in for a treat there, no doubt. So let's pray together right now. Father, I know whenever I start naming people, there's so many names that I leave out. Forgive me. I shouldn't start these lists. I know that. I repent. Lord, I pray now that you will bless our time together. It's been good. So much effort has gone in. Personal sacrifice has gone in to bringing this together so that we could realize that we're nothing. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? But we are nothing. And because we are, then something, something is going to happen. Something can take place. The Lord Jesus Christ's life will be lived through hundreds and hundreds of people as a result of the words that have been spoken here this week, the word of God. Bless our last uh, time this morning together here at this camp. I pray that you help me say some things that would be encouraging and challenging to all. In Jesus' name we pray, and for Jesus' sake, amen. I'm going to ask you to open your Bible this morning to the book of Ephesians. And again, just so you know, I'm not rejecting my Bible. I have my scripture verses written in my outline here, right out of a King James Bible. I just want you to know that, so that's what I will be reading from. Ephesians chapter 4, in verse Number one is where we'll begin to read. This series of messages started with me being a wise guy asking a 16-year-old girl a question on New Year's morning, 2012. 2012, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it was a Sunday morning. And uh, this bagel shop was open on New Year's morning. So I went in, they opened at 6 o'clock in the morning. I walked in, 
And a young lady was looking at me across the counter, looked like she didn't want to be there. She probably was up half the night. It was New Year's Eve, the evening before, obviously. And I said, how are you doing this morning? And she kind of grunted or groaned. Not good customer service. I want you to know that. But, you know, I got to get I got to be long suffering because Mark told me to. I got to be a little long suffering. So I was long suffering. And I, and I said, hey, let me ask you a question. I'm trying to cheer this girl up. I say that, you know, it's New Year's morning. How was last year? <laughs> That's a nice deep question for you at six o'clock. Tell me all about last year. Well, I'm just trying to create a conversation. And uh, she grunted and groaned again. Then I asked her a third question. This was my last question. My third question is, let me ask you this. I, the second question, how would you measure how you did last year? Tell me how you'd go about measuring whether you had a good year or a bad year. Well, she was done with me then. You know, I'd gone way deeper than her education or intellectual ability when I asked that question. And so I stopped. I could see that I, if I went any further, I would have been sinning. There's no question in my mind. It would have been intentionally irritating her. Maybe I already crossed that line already. But anyway, I asked her that question. And I started thinking about that that morning after I asked her. I said, how about me? What kind of year did I have last year? And how would I measure my year last year. And that's what got me thinking about this wheel that you have seen, the wheel of fortune that Chris mentioned before. And I'm glad that Chris got something out of this camp. I heard him talking about all the good things that Chris got out of the camp. And then he demeaned his wife. He said his poor wife, Christine, the only thing she got out of this is she wants a Corvette. She wants a Corvette. Now, obviously, Chris has not been listening to the sermons that have been preached here this week, demeaning his wife publicly in front of hundreds of people. But I have some advice for Chris. Chris, if you would stop smoking, you could buy a Corvette, too. <laughs> That'll teach you. That'll teach you. Christine paid me $20 to say that this morning. Christine, I'll see you afterwards to collect. Anyway, Ephesians chapter 4. So I started thinking about how would I measure my life, and I broke my life down into these 10 categories. Now, you could break yours down into eight or 11, and there's all kinds of these cycles of life and cycle for success, and probably you've seen something like this at work or some other place. Maybe a life coach has coached you and drew you a little picture like this or a pyramid or whatever it is. But these are the things that I thought my life was made up of and the 10 things that showed up. But this morning, I want to talk about one of those pieces, your vocation. That was one of the pieces. We'll see that in just a few moments when the, when the wheel comes up on the screen again. But we're going to talk about your vocation. Ephesians chapter 4 says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation. This is the only time that word is used in the King James Bible right here. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Peace, there's one body, one spirit. Even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Important. 
none of them are unimportant. Now, you might have objected to the way I listed them. Uh, you might see, you know, number nine should be number five and all that. Remember, I get the chance to preach here this morning. You get your own church and you can draw your own wheel, all right? I just want you to know that. But uh, none of the things on that list or on that wheel are unimportant. Please, I want you to understand that. Now, one of the things that's on that list, uh, it, I think it's maybe number eight in the pyramid that I gave, was physical fitness. Now, I'm not saying that it's unimportant. Everything is important, but it's relatively less important than other things. Now, you might disagree, and I might have disagreed with you some time ago. I, over the years, I've, been, I've spent a lot of time in physical fitness but I'm almost 72 years old now. I don't need to run marathons and triathlons and bench 250 pounds. I don't need to do that at my age anymore. In fact, I can't do that anymore. So to set goals like that for myself is really probably, according to my chiropractor, counterproductive. It's only going to hurt me at this point. But right now I can tell you this. I've got five grandsons and I have eight granddaughters, and I have five children, and they have four spouses, and that is two, Penny, my wife, and George. We got married in August, or excuse me, January of 1968, and now there are 24 of us. From two, we have 24 people in my immediate family. I used to spend lots of time training for marathons. It takes a lot of, t a lot of time to train for a marathon, to run 26.2 miles. I used to do that. I don't do that anymore. I spend my time with my, I have to tell you that. But no, I don't do that anymore. I don't lift weights and all that. I just don't do that because it's not my priority anymore. My priority is grandchildren. I love to be around my grandkids. I love to be around my children. I'm afraid that my children probably suffered a lot when I was, when I was heavily into the ministry and a, a ministerial workaholic. Now I have the chance at my age to look back and spend more time with my kids, my children, my five children, and I have more time to spend with their children right now, and I draw great joy. By the way, I know this may be hard for you to believe, but I draw greater joy from, being, from watching my 15-year-old grandson play basketball than running the Boston Marathon. I really do. I love watching my, my grandson play basketball. He's a great basketball player, and he's such a great kid. I love just sitting there. It's like crossing the finish line in Boston. It's incredible. You understand what I'm saying? One size doesn't fit all. So if you object to some of those things, you're in a different place in life. I understand that. I'm in a different place in life. And you, right now, maybe you know, working out 30 hours a week is the most important thing to you. And it was very important to me at one time. It won't be as important when you're my age, I promise you that, if you ever get there. Remember, you gotta get where I am. You ain't there yet, so be careful. All right, anyway. So let's get into this. That's kind of my introduction here. And uh, let's, go to my, uh, let's go to my first slide, all right? When I became a Christian, and I'm not going to go into the history of that, but I made a conscious choice to comply with the expectations of Jesus Christ, his church, and his body. I did. I knew what I was getting into 
a lot when I trusted Christ as Savior. I was a religious kid, grew up. I knew there was such a thing as surrender. Well, commit surrender. I knew there was such a thing as surrender as a 10-year-old. I was very religious. I was a very good Catholic little boy. I went to church every day for eight and a half years. I didn't say every week. I went to church every day as a Catholic altar boy. From the time I was in sixth grade to the time I was in college, I went to church every single day as a Catholic kid. So I understood that when I trusted Christ as Savior, there's something to this, and I am making or going to have to make some kinds of commitments. In fact, when I prayed, and I was done praying and trusted Christ as Savior, I looked up at the fellow that led me to, the, uh, to, the, to Christ, and this was my question. Now, what do I do? That's a natural question for a saved person to ask. Now, what do I do? If you're a Christian, that's a natural question for you to ask every day of your life. Now, Lord, what do I do? He'll answer you. You'll figure that thing out, I promise you. But nonetheless, I understood when I got involved that I, what I was getting involved in. When I became a Christian, I became a Christian American, a Christian husband, a Christian employee, a Christian neighbor, and in the future, the potential of being a Christian father. I had no children then, a Christian minister, and certainly a Christian friend. I cannot separate my calling to Christianity from any of the major roles I play in life. Do you understand that? You cannot compartmentalize your Christianity. Now, I've compartmentalized, in a sense, in the wheel, 10 different subjects there. But at the center, and I can't go into my whole series, but in one of my messages, I pull that spiritual component out of the 10, and then I plant it as the bullseye right in the center, and the other nine circle that. Because my spirituality, or lack thereof, has something to do with every other area of my life. You get it? You understand? You're not just a Christian on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock in the morning. And you know that. I mean, you're a Christian. You've come out to a camp this week. And assuming that your motives are good, you understand. I'm a Christian. I need to get involved in this. I can learn something. It's most unfortunate that many Christians do not see their conversion and calling to Christianity in this light. Too many Christians are glad to enjoy the benefits of being a Christian, but at the same time have little or no sense of responsibility to conform to certain expected Christian and biblical moral standards. Now, in the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul lays out uh, the honor, privilege, and the blessings of Christianity, that is, of being in the body of Christ, being in the church. The last three chapters call for a practical response on the Christian's part. This is the doctrine, now this is what I need to do. This is what salvation is all about. Remember Ephesians 2? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. What we're doing in those first three chapters is we're learning doctrine. We're learning about salvation. And then in chapters 4, 5, 6, what we're looking at here, if I go back to that last uh, uh, one Ephesians chapter 4. This is the practical application of the doctrines that are taught in the first three chapters. So let's skip ahead here to our next. 
The privilege of being a Christian brings with it the responsibility of acting like one. And by the way, if you're acting, it's better to act like one, even if you don't believe everything about it. Act like a Christian, okay? At least try. Now, we've talked about commitment, we've talked about the flesh, but I'd rather have you act civilly rather than say, you know, I don't feel like being civil, so I'm just going to live like a barbarian, and that way no one can criticize me for being a hypocrite. You're never going to get this thing down 100% in this life. The goal is to be conformed to the image of Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I can tell you about me. No one has ever mistaken me for Jesus. You know who you remind me of? You remind this is this is this is really weird, man. You know who you remind me of? You remind me of Jesus. Yes, I'm not surprised that you have recognized that. No one's ever done that. Now, that's kind of a goal in my life. It'd be nice if someone was sincere. It just hasn't happened yet. I'm not there yet. I'm still in the process of sanctification and growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But we're to act like a Christian. Primarily, there is an inward, and we've talked about this a couple mornings ago, Transformation that results in an external change in the way in which we live. My calling in life, my vocation, that's the word, is to be a Christian. Not to be a minister. Not to be an electrician. Not to be an accountant. Not to be a nurse. That's not what my calling in life is. That may be the job that I do to pay the bills and whatnot, but my calling and your calling is to be a Christian whatever, electrician, engineer, mother, American. That's what our calling is. When we talk about vocation, that's what the Bible is talking about in Ephesians chapter number four. I got saved on a Tuesday I asked the fellow that led me to the Lord, what should I do? And this was what he told me. He said, I want you to go to this church out in the town of Greece. It's outside of Rochester. And they have a Friday night Bible study there. And I want you to go there. I went home and told my wife I got saved. And she said, what does that mean? And uh, I really couldn't explain it to her, although I believe I got saved. And my wife said, I want to go. My wife was more open to this than I was, certainly at the beginning. So we went to that church, and this is the passage of Scripture that the pastor taught on Friday night, which would have been the first Friday of September 1972 at First Bible Baptist Church in Rochester, New York. And this thing made so much sense to me. This is what launched me beyond my salvation experience. This is what launched me into my Christian life. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. Not committed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So that's 
really kind of where I started. Now, the fellow that led me to Christ, he said, I want you to do this. I want you to read the Gospel of John. I want you to read one chapter a day over the next uh, 21 days. So I started reading. Within about three or four days, I finished the whole thing. I couldn't put it down. For, for me, that was a lot of Bible reading back then because I didn't read the Bible at all. I read 21 chapters of the Bible in three or four days. Man, you know, I'm going to be a scholar pretty soon. I know everything there is to know about the Bible. Really simple and stupid back then. Not much better off now either. But anyway, Romans chapter 12 really resonated with me. Another passage of scripture, Philippians chapter 1, verse number 27, says, Only let your conversation, your manner of life, the way you act life out, be as it becometh the gospel. Make Jesus look good with your life. Some of us make Jesus look bad. You're a Christian? Well, I don't want to be a Christian. As it becometh the gospel of Christ, make the gospel look good the way you live. Make Jesus look good. Make people fall in love with Jesus and God's word because it's so important to you and they look at you and you are a different human being. You're the type of person they like to be around. You're the type of person they can trust. Again, Ephesians chapter 4, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. And then he goes on to say in verse 2, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. So these are some of the foundation passages and concepts that I uh, was acquainted with or was introduced to as a new Christian. Again, Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3 deal with doctrine. Now, the, all of the Bible deals with doctrine, but Paul is laying down some doctrines in the first three chapters that he's going to expound on and give practical application in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Another passage of scripture, it's not on the screen, but Colossians 3 says, mortify therefore your members. There's a good word, <laughs> uh, Mark, mortify. We're talking about surrender, we're talking about abide, we're talking about let. Those are all Bible words. Here's a Bible word, kill yourself, mortify. That's what it means. We're talking about the crucified life. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. What? If you don't know what I'm talking about, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which, this is George Grace, in the which ye also walked sometime when you lived in them. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication, etc., etc. And verse 10 says, put on the new man. Put on the new man. That's putting on the mind of Christ. That's Philippians chapter 2, verse number 5, that Mark was speaking about last night. Doctrine is so important. Doctrine is so important. Now, I've read a lot of John MacArthur's stuff. I like reading his stuff. You may not like him. That's okay. You're wrong and I'm right. Anyway, <laughs> this is what he says. The importance of doctrine. Let me, let me put a, a, a little uh, plug in for uh, your Bible Institute. 
You need to know doctrine. Now, I don't like that word. It seems stodgy and stale and, you know, ecclesiastical or whatever it is. But doctrine, doctrine is the body of truth. It's what does the Bible actually teach? We need to know what it teaches. And MacArthur says this, that right doctrine is necessary for right living. You need to know the Bible to live right. Duh! Is that strange? You all knew that already, but somebody has to say it sometimes to remind us. If you're going to live right, you've got to get the right stuff in here. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. What you put in here is what you fall in love with down here. And what you love is where you invest your time, your resources, and your stewardship. So if you put garbage in, garbage out. You understand that? You put good stuff in, right doctrine, good stuff comes out. You're being filled with the Spirit. You're letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's what's happening to you as you put good doctrine, the Bible, in. Get in the Bible Institute. Don't look at that list that that Brother Sam put up there yesterday. He talked about the first step and the second step and then D2 and then the... Don't say, oh, that's too much for me. Get started. You have the whole rest of your life to get through all of that stuff. You don't think God expects that of you? You need to be ready to give an answer to every man that asketh the hope that lieth within you. You need to study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Those aren't suggestions in the Bible. Those are commandments to us as Christian people. He says right doctrine leads to right living. Doctrine simply means teaching. And there's no way that even the most sincere believer can live a life pleasing to God without knowing what God himself is like and knowing the sort of life God wants him to live. You know what God's goal is for you? Is to get to know him. Then we become worshipers. He's looking for worshipers, but worshipers of God are people who know him. People who don't know God don't worship God in spirit and truth. So your Bible Institute, your discipleship is all geared to help you to get to know God so you'll become a worshiper, so you'll become every member a minister in your church. That's the process. And if you're not getting with it, get out. Make room. Open up the chair for somebody who's serious about glorifying God with their life. Sam, your church is starting to run out of room. We need a backdoor revival. Get rid of the riffraff. You don't want to get on board? Get out and make room for somebody who wants to. Yeah. I'm not kidding. I'm not trying to be funny. Who wants to, what pastor wants to waste his time on people that don't want to do anything? You talk about something that'll get a guy out of the ministry preaching every Sunday morning to a bunch of people that are sitting there like this. Go ahead, bless me, pastor, I dare you. He's not going to be around very long, I guarantee you. He's going back to be a garbage man or something, or a used car salesman, I don't know. But he ain't going to do that anymore, looking at your face, I promise you. Now, these are three things, very quickly, that we're going to look at here. This is the outline of three thoughts that I want to give to you. We're going to look at the call to walk worthy. We're going to look at the characteristics of one who does 
and then the cause for which, for which one walks worthy. So, Colossians chapter 3, just a reminder, whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Whatever we do as Christians, we do in the name of the Lord giving thanks, according to that passage. We are Christian, listen to the list and see if you can find what you do on here. We're Christian technicians, businessmen, doctors, teachers, salesmen, consultants, mechanics, construction workers. Find your name there? Well, I'm not done. Ready? Attorneys, managers, supervisors, administrators, nurses, social workers, and pastors. How about missionaries, architects, production workers, IT personnel, analysts, economists, advisors? No? Carpenters, HVAC, electricians, heavy equipment operators, trainers, investors, opticians. How about therapists, nutritionists, chiropractors, farmers, laborers, buyers, police officers, secretaries, and mothers? And if I left your profession out, I just ran out of time when I prepared this. That's the only reason. We're all, our vocation, we are called, we are called to walk worthy. We're going to look at the characteristics here, and we're going to look at the cause here very, very quickly to wrap this up. All right, let's look at the call to walk worthy. As a result of all the blessings and benefits of being in Christ, of being a Christian, Paul says that we need to live our lives in such a way to make Jesus and the gospel of Christ look good, be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Paul saw everything in life, We've heard this every message this week, and clearly last night, if you missed it any other time, Paul saw everything in life in light of and with reference to Jesus Christ and his mission. He saw everything vertically first before before he saw it horizontally. For me, he said, to live is Christ. His motives were Christ's. His standards were Christ. His objectives were Christ's. His vision was Christ's. His entire orientation to life was Christ's. Everything he thought, planned, and said was in reference to Jesus Christ. Paul entreated, he begged the church at Ephesus. He begged them to listen and act upon the truth. Christians should never resent the plea of their pastor a pastor who approaches his ministry with detachment and indifference is not worthy of his office. Sam's a little tough. I listened to him the other day. By the way, Sam, your presentation, those nine principles, those nine core values, incredible, wonderful presentation. Some of the things Sam said, one of, I remember one thing, he was talking about unity, and he was basically saying, if you're not going to get with the program, get out. Okay, pretty tough. He said, what kind of pastor is that guy? He's a good pastor. That's what he is. He's telling you the truth. Sometimes a pastor says things that are a little edgy, maybe hurt a little bit, or seem a little bit demanding, or maybe going beyond uh, his responsibility. A good pastor is going to drive you. He's going to challenge you. It's like a coach. 
Who, who, who wants to play on a ball team, a football team, where the coach gets into the locker room and he says, now guys, listen, we're going to go out in the field. This is a very, very good team. But I don't want anyone, I don't want anyone to exert yourself, okay? Please don't do that. I don't, the, the last thing that I want for you guys is that you get hurt. Okay, so you just take it easy. And if it looks like there's a situation where the tackle is going to be, a, you know, tough, you're going to go head to head with somebody or what, then just let them run on. Don't worry about it. Or, you know, I don't want anyone to get hurt. So at the end of the game, you see this? We got 53 guys on the bench. At the end of the game, I want 53 guys to be on the bench. That's my goal. I don't want anyone to get hauled off in an ambulance. I don't want anyone. You want to play on that team? What's wrong with him? He's challenged. He doesn't care if half the team ends up in an ambulance as long as he wins the game. Now, that's his goal is to help you win the game. Secondarily, he'd like you to keep you from getting hurt, but that's not the primary thing is to keep you from trauma. He's going to put you through trauma, I guarantee you, because the goal is the coach and the president of the university wants him to win the game because it means big money for the university when the team wins, that's for sure but the call to walk worthy. Paul saw everything in light of and with reference to Jesus Christ. Christians should never resent or appeal the appeal of their pastor. A pastor who approaches his ministry with detachment, with indifference, is not worthy of his office. Loving concern for the spiritual welfare of others is costly. The word walk is a reference to the way in which one conducts his life. I think you already know that. The believer who walks in a manner worthy of his vocation or calling is one whose daily life corresponds to his position in God's family. Practical living matches spiritual position. Practical living matches spiritual position. So, the call is to walk worthy. Walk worthy. Everything that you've heard this week is telling us how to walk worthy. It's not about me. It's totally and completely about him. I am nothing. He is everything. And when we get there or we, we work to get there, we grow to get less. John the Baptist, he said, he must increase. I must decrease. That's what this process is all about. Less of me and more of him. When we get there, we will be walking more worthily of him. All right, let's look at our next slide here. What are the characteristics? If you look at the text in Ephesians chapter 4, there's five things that are said there. Now, this isn't an exhaustive list, but if I'm going to act like a Christian, I must employ these five principles that follow in the text in Ephesians chapter number 4. Christians act like Jesus. When you look at when people look at you, if they see this in you, you'll begin to remind them of Christ if they understand what the Bible teaches about him. Lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, diligently working to preserve unity and peace. Now, I noticed that if there was anything, and there was much, but if there was anything that Sam got passionate about, it was number five on that list. Unity. Unity. That's what the Bible teaches. When the church lives in unity, it is reflecting the person and personality of Jesus Christ. 
It's reflecting the persons of God, the Trinity. Three persons, one God, and they all three persons work together as a unit. Jesus doesn't criticize the Father. The Holy Spirit doesn't talk behind the back of Jesus and say that Jesus has got it all messed up. Uh Uh-uh. You see... Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That is, unity is an attribute of God. Like love is an attribute of God. So we want to be united. So what are the characteristics? Lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, and diligently working to preserve the unity in peace. These terms might even be sequential. I'm not sure, but it kind of starts lowliness, works into meekness, which works into long-suffering, which works into forbearing, which brings about unity. There's probably, you could make a case for that if you would like to. Now, if you look at that list, there's only five things there, but if you you study it a little bit, it kind of looks like the fruit of the Spirit. All you got to do is add like love and peace onto there and maybe gentleness, and it all really... What we're talking about is the fruit of a spirit-filled life. That's who Jesus is, and that's what Jesus looks like. Jesus looks like love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, gentleness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such, there is no law. This is what Jesus looks like. You can study the Gospels, and this is what he looks like. He's love. God is love, joy, peace. This is a portrait of Christ. This is our goal in allowing the word of God, the spirit of God, the grace of God through his word to come into our lives so that we are transformed, we grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then what people experience on the other side of our lives is Love. Again, I said this, I think yesterday, we're not to be filled with the Spirit so we can walk around and people look at us and go, man, there's a loving guy right there. Man, that guy's a loving guy. That guy's a peaceful guy. You know, We do this so people will experience the love of God through our relationships with them. We're peaceful. We're joyful. And it makes them joyful it kind of rubs off. We are gentle, goodness, faith or loyalty, meekness, self-control or temper. They see that, not so we can brag on the fact that, you want to see somebody filled with the Spirit? Here I am right here. Take a good look. I got all nine of it. I am it. No. It's so that when we relate to other people, that this is what they experience. They experience the love, the joy, the meekness of Christ emanating from our spirit. That's the goal, people. Not to check the boxes. Well, I worked in Sunday school. I worked in the nursery. I worked in the bus ministry. I read my Bible three chapters today. I prayed, and I prayed over my lunch. There, I am a good Christian. This is a good Christian right here. When you emanate... You exhibit the love of Christ in your life. And it's genuine because it's from the filling of the Holy Spirit of God. You're nothing. He's everything. That's everything right there. It's not me. Oh, that George Grace, he's really a loving guy. (laughs) You don't know me. I'm not really a loving guy. I'm a skunk. 
I'm a sinner saved by the grace of God. Well, here's a verse that we've seen before and talked about before. Galatians. Let's, let's see. Let's try it. Yeah, I said that. Let's move back here. Maybe I'm clear. There we go. I'm clicking ahead when I'm talking. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, etc., etc. That's the fruit of the Spirit. And then Colossians chapter 3 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is the filling of the Holy Spirit. If you compare Colossians 3, 16 to Ephesians 5, 18, you'll see that they're almost identical. You figured this out on your own just by reading your Bible. You say, boy, this looks like the filling of the Spirit. Ephesians 5, 18 looks like Colossians 3. That's what it is. The filling of the Spirit isn't accomplished by you coming forward in an invitation. You go, oh, God, oh, God, fill me with your Spirit. Fill me with your Spirit. Fill me with your Spirit. I think I'm getting there. Fill, I'm about half full right now. I got half a tank. Fill me with your Spirit. Fill me with your Spirit. More and more. Oh, okay. I see, Lord. You want me to put a tithe in the offering plate? There we go. Now I'm getting more filled with the Spirit because I'm obedient in my monetary life. Oh, fill me... That's not how you get filled with the Spirit. That's not what it's all about. It's about spending time in the book with an open heart and an open mind so God can teach you and impart his spiritual wisdom and his spiritual truth to you, which transforms you, which makes you more. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, don't we? And we're to be, con and they do because of the next verse, so that we would be conformed to the image of God's Son. The good and the bad the, the, in our lives, they, they all happen for good reasons. God hasn't lost track of you, but the goal is, even in the good and even in the bad things of life, is to make you like Jesus. Jesus had a couple bad things happen to him, like being crucified is not a good thing. You know, we talk, well, uh, if you live a good Christian life, you're just not going to have any problems. Tell John the Baptist that. Yeah, you're not going to have any problems, John. If you just live a good Christian life, be a good goody-goody two-shoes. No, no, no. There's suffering in the Christian life. We know that. Colossians chapter 3. Let me keep moving here before the kids come running in here quickly. I am doing pretty good, though. I'm doing pretty good. I'm getting closer and closer to the end. So we looked at Colossians 3.16. The next thing... We want to look at the third thing is the cause. The cause for which one walks worthy. The cause or basis of outward oneness is inner oneness. Inner oneness. If the Midtown Baptist Temple is going to be unified, it will be unified on the basis of the oneness of your own personal spirit collectively as a group of people. When churches are having unity problems, somebody's messed up. Somebody's messed up. That's not a result of Jesus messing up or just getting confused because he didn't realize who you were and what you would do. He never is surprised at anything. The problem is somebody in the church is stepping out of line. The cause for which we do this, Ephesians chapter number four, one body, that's the church. One spirit, it's the Holy Spirit. One hope, these are reasons, these are good reasons. This is our cause. One hope, eternal life. One Lord, only one, Jesus. 
one faith, one body of truth, that is our doctrine, our Bible, one baptism, spirit baptism, one God, God the Father. These, these are cast iron, cast in concrete truths of the Christian church. These are orthodox truths. This is what, there's a lot of things that we get involved in as Christians that aren't necessarily primary or the most important priorities of Christianity. But these are, these are. This is the cause of walking worthy as a Christian. One body, one spirit. It's oneness or unity. Because oneness or unity is a characteristic or quality of God himself wholeness, oneness. And although I can dissect my life into 10 different pieces, practically speaking, the 10 really are 10 pieces of a one. They are all interrelated. They are all inseparably and inextricably intertwined with one another. So here's the pie again. These all work together. If you mess up in one area, there's a tendency for that sin to bleed into another area of your life. Do you understand that? That's the way sin works. We mess up with our family or we, get, we live in the flesh. It has a way of bleeding into other parts of our lives until the whole circle, every part of this, ends up being infected or polluted. And we live totally and completely in the flesh. Now, I don't have this slide, but at the center of this, I, in one of my other messages, I put spiritual. Spiritual is the center of the other nine because there's a spiritual component to every single one of these. Family, it's important. That goes back to Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. Financial, Oh, there's a lot about money in the Bible and being a good steward with your finances. Let this mind be in you. God wants us to use our intellect. You can find scriptural passages on everything on this chart that relate to the crucified life. I don't have the time to go through 10 other sermons here this morning. In fact, I barely have enough time to finish this one. But this is what we're talking about. We're talking about I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. The cause for which one walks worthy is the unity of the body, working together in one accord, all hands on deck, using a, a naval uh, analogy. Every member a minister everywhere. God has sprinkled missionaries out of these churches, out of KCBT and others, all over the world, every member a minister everywhere. God has sprinkled missionaries everywhere into our own culture. And by the way, you are a missionary. It's your vocation. You're a missionary. You understand that? You're to go. You're to love God. You're to love people. You're to serve others. And you're to tell everyone. That is what... My wristband, my mission statement is all about. 
And I can give you biblical passages on every one of them. Loving God is the first and greatest commandment. Loving your neighbor as as yourself is the second. Jesus came not to be ministered to. Mark 10, 45, that's the third. And we're to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Matthew chapter 28, Mark, Luke, John, the book of Acts. That's the mission right there. To live that out in every area of your life. Because every area of your life is a Christian life. You are a Christian in your church. You are a Christian in your community. You are a Christian by vocation. You are a Christian even when you're playing golf. And sometimes that's hard to do. You're a Christian in your family. You're a Christian when you go to the gym or you run or you bike. You're a Christian when it comes to your money. You're a Christian when you go on vacation. You're a Christian when you sit down to read. You are a Christian because you are tied into God. You are born again, spiritual. One more passage. The kids are not in here yet. We're doing great. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Turn there in your Bible, if you would. We've got time to do that. I don't hear the hoofbeats yet. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Are you? You a new creature? You a new creature? Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. All things. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us, all of us. He's not talking to uh, a couple apostles. He's talking to the whole church. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. Our job is to help people understand who God is and that God wants to be reconciled with them. First of all, there's a division caused by sin. But God made them, God didn't make them for hell. God made them to go to heaven. However, God made you to go to heaven, but you can resist. You can say, no, that's your free will. To wit, verse 19 says that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed, there's commitment in the Bible right there in verse 19, and hath committed, God's committed, unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead be reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Look at verse 19 one more time. It says he has committed unto us the word or the ministry of reconciliation. We are, as you go out of this room and away from this camp, you're nothing. You're nothing. But we know somebody who is somebody. And when we spend time in his word and allow his grace to flood our soul, allow the word of God to come in, the truth of God's word to come in, when we allow that, what happens is we grow spiritually. And what is coming in necessarily begins to seep out love, joy, peace. And wherever you go, your vocation is this. To be an ambassador. To be an ambassador of heaven. To be an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Because you are a new creature in him.
Let's pray together this morning, all right, Father? Thank you for our time together in your word. Thank you for this truth we all need to live out every day of our lives. Lord, I pray your blessings now on the pastors that are here, the leaders from the churches, the worship leaders, the disciples, the church members, the servants who serve in these churches. Lord, that we will walk away from this camp, drive away from this camp, being a little bit, maybe a lot different than we walked in here three days ago. Lord, that Christ would be honored and glorified, that Christ would be our lives. And Lord, that we would live to magnify him and realize that we are nothing, we are nobody, but we know somebody who knows something and is a great somebody, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And all the people said... Amen. Amen. God bless you all. Thank you. Thank you for the privilege and opportunity to be here. Thank you, Brother Sam. God bless you. Thank you. How are we doing?